little bit sassy, little bit crazy, little bit classy. We got dreams and we got goals. We're just a couple of old sassholes. Hello. Hi. Oh my gosh, today's the first day that we ever got our volumes right on the first shot. I know, I, f- I feel lucky. Are I you feeling sure. lucky? I'm feeling so lucky. Good. And welcome everyone to a couple of Sassel's podcast. I'm Brooklyn Maple. And I'm Heather Terry. And this is our power hour of true crime, fucked up shit, horrible things that make you sad, and then also more aware of your surroundings. That was very PSA-y of you. Yeah. You know what? Also in my story today, we talk about like the gut feeling. Mm-hmm. And like, once more, I can't say it enough because mama be preaching this 24 seven. If you have that feeling, that is your body's defense against bad things and from prey. And so if you have that bad feeling, listen to that bad feeling. Yeah. Listen to it. That's right. Don't stamp it down. Because right. I feel like there's so many times if we're ever lucky enough to hear from the victim's point of view afterwards, they're always like. I had a bad feeling. This was the moment that I was like, I should get out of the car. I should leave the house. I mm-hmm. should insert all the things that we should be doing that we didn't do. So, yeah. Anyway. How educational. That's what I'm here for. Yeah. I've had about three sips of coffee. Yeah. If we're recording early on a Saturday when it's 20 degrees outside. It's so cold. And <laughs> I had a birthday party last night. So my head is a little foggy. Heather is a rock star. So I'm I'm grateful for Heather for being here because we had um, a whole bunch of stuff happen during the week and we just really couldn't record. And so I'm going to hang out with my Uncle Gordon, who is my sweet baby angel that I spent so much time with. He's like 75 and I'm always hanging He's out with him. He's adorable. Yeah. So we're going to the mall. <laughs> I love that. Buy me a present. She bought me a present. I know. Oh my God. Look at Heather. <laughs> yeah. It says maid of honor, obviously. Yeah. That's a shirt. Yes. And it, and it, I am obviously the maid of honor because, duh, I would literally gut you if anyone else was. <laughs> I couldn't imagine even at this point in my life, I I don't even know about bringing in like a new actual friend that I would text regularly. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> that's OK. You're good. I, I literally I've got 19 personalities. You don't very, need another friend. <laughs> very good. Everything's <laughs> solid over here. I'm a lot of work. Yeah. So <laughs> that's true, too. You don't have enough time. Yeah. We finally got our save the dates out for the wedding, which I'm really excited about. Yay! I feel like that was step one. I was in a meeting yesterday that didn't necessarily require me taking notes. So I went through the next six months and highlighted the big key items I needed to do for the wedding. I'm sure for any of our listeners who know me or have heard us before, I am a type A, highly anxiety type person. capital motherfucking A. There's don't be like I'm a type A. You're a type A. Like A type A. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in a good way. I it's mean, charming. There's not it's charming. Yes. <laughs> it's charming and it keeps me on my toes. Yeah. Tracy, our boss is like, it's one of the things uh, that makes you quirky. I'm like, what the <laughs> See? Oh, I know. I get it. It is, it is what it is. Man, but... We should be realtors. We have good ways to put positive spins on things. Yeah. <laughs> like that. Carpet in the bathroom. <laughs> it's quaint. It means it, it's fucking small. It'll dry your feet when you get out of the shower. <laughs> Ew, carpet in the bathroom. Yeah, that's a thing. That happened Ew. back in like the 70s, 60s. That sicks me out so bad. There's like sharticles all over the carpet. Never once thought about that. Ooh. That was really impressive. It, I can't even lie. That sharticles is impressive. No, just the fact that like I didn't even think about shit airborne, particles. Airborne shit. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even think about it. Well, leave it to me. Yeah. That's why we're a good team. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway, so we got those out. I have an Excel sheet that is the uh, guest list. And once more, it is a small wedding. So if anyone gets their freaking panties in a bundle, like, dude, Ooh, it's I small. hate that word. Panties. Um, it's a small wedding and it's meant to be. And it's still stressful, even though it's like just my family and like three friends from Miami. <laughs> I'm like, this is so much. It is a lot. It is. Yeah. Heather told me it was, and I was like, I can do this. It's not. Heather literally tried to sit me down before everything was like, here's some things for you to expect. And I was like, no. She's like, oh, it's fine. She was like, you're going to go over budget. I was like, no, I won't, or I just won't have it. Nope, I'm over budget by like $10,000. And it is what it is. It fucking is what it is. Well, that's one thing I've learned from being friends with you. Having a sibling is they're never right. And you have yeah. to figure it out from everyone else. But just, it's also, that's it's, every human being. Yeah, it's a, and Anyone not, that you're close to, yeah. it's the same thing. Like, I, don't, I don't take offense to it. I'm, I know, I'm just, yeah. I'm just acknowledging that's <laughs> fucking everyone. I'm like, I've said that to you six times, but I'm happy that your random friend from Arkansas told you that. And now you're like, oh yeah, that, that's right. You're like, Fuck did you. you know? And I'm like, uh, yeah, I did know. And you did too when I told you two months ago, you twat. And, and another like, 15 oh, you days did? ago. Like, yeah, I fucking did. <laughs> It's all right. I love it. Anyway, I put STD next to um, the people's names, and Travis finally hopped into that Excel sheet that he hadn't touched other than the one time that he made his original list. And just like me, he started cutting people. It's so funny to see the original list, and then you're like, you know what? Fuck you. Fuck you. (laughs) Fuck you. You're off. I don't like you that much. And he's like, why is there STD next to the name? I was like... Oh, they all called me and they said they had a varial disease. What do you, I go, what the fuck do you think? It's next to your mom's name, Travis. I was You're like, yeah, your mom called me and she's like, hey, this gonorrhea be bitching. <laughs> Flaring gonorrhea up. be bitching. Flaring up. <laughs> Girl, I was like, babe, save the date. And he was like, oh, okay. I mean, I get it. It's not a very charming yeah. abrevi. That's... A breezy. Oh my God. That just made you so happy. It did. I kind of want to squeeze you. Other than that, I have nothing else going on besides trying not to fucking freeze to death. Yeah. Like not be able to get my car doors open. Oh my God. Yeah. Same. I put together a bookshelf last night. Man. Strong ass <laughs> woman. And I can't lie, I hurt my back the whole time. What? My back hurt the whole time. Like being hunched over like that. I was like, I want to buy two more. And I'm like, I don't know if my lower back is. Did you really do it? Like you did it? I did it all by myself. Was it? provoked or you were like i'm gonna do this I'm, i was just like i'm gonna do this after i finished it travis came upstairs to see it and he goes yeah i was never gonna offer to help you i hate putting shit together like that i was like well i was never gonna ask because i wanted to be able to do it myself these are no, my books i would literally put it on will's side of the bed i'm so that girl <laughs> i'm not gonna i am very independent but do shit for me That's honestly <laughs> it reminds me of like when i lived in miami and i had no one like mm-hmm. i put together an entire queen size bed frame by myself like okay. with my like i did everything by myself Bobby and i'm like here. oh Reminder, I can do this. I re- Pay attention. Yeah. See, I know I can do stuff too. I just don't want to. <laughs> I understand that. But we need to be reminded. We need to be capable. I'm capable. I don't. I know. So she says. I and she's like, it. I've never put that together before. No, I'm not doing that shit. Um, are we rock paper scissorings? What? I'm kidding. I was yeah. like, I'm the gonna literally jump that over you this table. Just gave. We can't have live record. Like, we can't have people see us record. They are gonna I do see. look like I'm gonna fist fight Heather like three times. Well, on March third, you better turn that frown upside down. I thought you said merch third. You, you did give me a man. I was like merch store um, <laughs> coming soon. <laughs> that is true. Heather nailed that. I'm so excited about that. About our merch. Oh my god, that I'm probably the, more excited about that than the live show almost. Really? Oh I yeah, know. I don't want to talk in front of people. I know. I have to learn how to make eye contact. With who? Everyone. Because We're supposed to look at them? Yeah. I mean, 
Yeah, well, because I just stare at my paper the whole time, you guys. Behind the scenes. Oh, info, yeah. Is I literally read my paper. You look up a lot. I do not. Mine, I, we'll so, figure it out. Yeah, we'll it's practice. fine. Nobody needs to look at me. I don't need to look at them. Fuck it. <laughs> That's just like, that was the weirdest performance ever. They just stared at a piece of they paper. They just looked at their piece of paper. It was like a book reading. Yeah, Justin goes, what if people talk? I'm like, That's how I just talk louder. Yeah. Like, shut the fuck up, Sarah. <laughs> Listen. Thing is very... I accidentally. Did you pause it? I paused it. I'm going to move the keyboard. Yeah, move it far away. And so I was just like, oh, I'm going to tell. I was saying Sarah to fuck off. And then I was like, there's a Sarah that listens that I know. And You're she's like, like fuck are off, you... Sarah. And Sarah's like, you know what? Fuck you. <laughs> I didn't want to fucking go anyway. Yeah. I didn't want to even come here. I just came here for a beer and you bitches were on stage. <laughs> anyway, it's March 3rd. Come see us. Yes. Um, yes. At Brasher's okay, Little We both have our papers. And, like, we're oh, gonna we're going to rock, paper, scissors. Re- okay, rock, paper, scissors, shoot. shoot. Yeah. Okay. One, two, three, shoot. Damn it, Heather won. Yeah. So good. (laughs) (laughs) We both look at each other in the eye and try to go slower than the other one, I've noticed. Like, we try to cheat. I I think you try to cheat because I don't. No, you did. I want to make sure we're on beat. (laughs) I beat you. (laughs) You could try. All right. Today's story, kids, ladies and gents, is uh, Joseph Roy Matheny. Have you ever heard of this? Maybe. I need more than the name. That's it? No, that's all I'm telling you. You guys Google it. All right, your turn. So this, I tripped and fell into this. Oh, I thought you were going to say that you literally tripped and fell. By the way, there's black ice in the parking lot, so be careful. There's what? Black ice in the parking lot. Oh. (laughs) Just. Sorry. You're such a meemaw. Okay. (laughs) What do you think I'm going to do? I slipped in that parking lot one time. I told you that and fell underneath my vehicle. There's no. There's ice outside? Yeah, I stepped on it whenever I got out of my car, and I was like, there's black ice. I need to tell Heather. I love you. Okay. Oh, you got that weak knee. But, okay, yes. My knee is weak. <laughs> I felt like I could stay standing, but apparently I can't because I fell before. So anyway, Man. look alive. I'm going to stop talking. I had a lot I'm drinking coffee. Here she goes. To, she does this every time we record. Out. She's like, I've had a lot of coffee. <laughs> okay. Let me go. <laughs> yeah. Okay, my sources, uh, Wikipedia, allthatsinteresting.com, Murderpedia, and a littlebithuman.com. So, la da Joseph Roy Matheny was born March, tw- wow, March 12th? No, 10 days before that, on March 2nd in 1955 in Baltimore County, Maryland. When he was two, they moved to West Virginia, so his mom, his dad, and Joe's five siblings. Now, there's not a lot on his childhood, but his parents struggled, so his dad was an alcoholic, and but he was a breadwinner, even though there wasn't a lot of bread, so money was tight. And six kids, that sounds pretty fucking expensive to me. I don't have one, but I heard they cost a lot. <laughs> and same. And same. Thanks. <laughs> See, you're allowed to talk sometimes. See, I agree. Yes. Thanks. In 1961... Joe was six. Uh, his mother got a phone call that his dad died in a car accident. Oh. Yeah. Jean, his mom, she was very proud and determined to provide for her family. So they moved back to Baltimore and she started taking on multiple jobs to provide. She could have qualified for welfare, but she decided not to do that at all, which she was just too proud and said no when she could have. Uh, Jean seemed like a badass, though. So she was like a server, a truck driver, a bartender in any job basically that came her way. Now, Joel told people later that he was in and out of foster homes, but Gene said that was bullshit. And after everything that I read, I agree. So he was, like, he was telling everybody, well, I was in foster care when I was younger. And his mom's like, no, the fuck you weren't. What a weirdo. Yeah. Okay, we're starting off pathological lying. Oh, girl. Great. Yeah. 
Now, her kids were still grieving the loss of their dad. And one thing I read said that some young children can interpret their parents' death as deliberate and abandonment and so causes issues later down the road. Which like I never if you re- died of alcoholism. I yeah. know that's a big one. Yeah, like they think they were so young they can be like, well, my dad left us when he was in a car accident. So oh, wow. It's sad. So I'm sure that didn't help Joe and his siblings. And plus his mom was working day and night. So sense of rejection. Yeah. More. Because, you know, I like to dig into the background. If Joe was fucked up from this, it didn't show, though, when he grew up because he got good grades and he was he didn't cause a lot of trouble. His neighbors and teachers said he was super thoughtful and polite young man. However, this changed along the way somehow. I mean, obviously, he's the center of my story. So it did change sometime. <laughs> he dropped out of school after eighth grade for some reason. And a lot of people think he just started working. And what, around what year was that? Like what? Uh... The 60s. Okay. I don't I'm know. always intrigued whenever we hear stories about people like dropping out of school in the eighth grade. I'm like, is that the 70s? That feels very 70s. Yeah, it was the 60s. So in 1973, Joe was 18. So you can math there. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. <laughs> yeah, I'm not doing that either. Uh, Joe joined the Army, uh, which allowed him to get his GED. And for some reason, he got a year and a half of physics education, which is very random to me. It is. So I was, my boobs were sweating before and now I'm freezing. So just know I'm going to stand up and change the air in here because apparently I'm going through like early I don't menopause. think that... That thermostat changes the air in this room. I feel cold air. Do you want to go get my jacket? I'm just going to be quiet and continue to let okay. you carry on with your okay. story. So Joe was deployed overseas and would ride home often. And then out of nowhere, he just started acting weird. He stopped responding and cut off all communication. And it's not clear why. Everything I read said that he spent two years in the Army without a lot of detail to where he was stationed. And he was honorably discharged in 1975. Uh, He went back to Baltimore and eventually went to see his family, and they said something was off, and he was completely different. They were sending his letters to Germany when they were writing to him, but he insisted he was in Vietnam and told all these heroic stories, and no one believed him, Mm. pretty much. He showed huge signs of narcissism, and he was always the hero and the good guy of his stories, and nothing was ever his fault. Joe picked up odd jobs living paycheck to paycheck, but he blew his money on alcohol. He was a bar fly, and he got hammered all the time, and he eventually escalated to crack cocaine and heroin, going down a dark path. He claimed he got hooked on drugs in Vietnam, which sadly it panned out for some soldiers who had PTSD that were stationed in Vietnam, but again, everyone thinks he was in Germany. So they think he got on drugs in Germany, but he wanted sympathy. So he said he was in Vietnam and had PTSD instead of just getting hooked on drugs. So, Mm. yeah. He spent his time with other drug users at a place called Tent City, which is where he lived a lot because he couldn't afford a place because he blew all his money on drugs and alcohol. People who knew him actually really liked him. And at this time, he was about 6'1 and 230 pounds, but his nickname was Tiny. Cute. Yeah. When he was sober, he was a complete gentleman, but when he was fucked up a switch flipped and he was rude and violent and loud as fuck like people were like yeah when you're sober we like you but not he was fighting and almost craved overpowering people like day and night so he did this shit for 20 years and then eventually he met a woman that i couldn't find her name and we're just gonna call her tina because why the fuck not? why not <laughs> yeah Go so for tina. i know you'll be shocked but their relationship was drug fueled and super toxic in 1984, he they had a son, but they kept being pieces of shit. So they were still fighting, drug using, all that stuff, even though they had a kid. Joe picked fights with everyone and racked up tons of charges uh, for assault and drunk and disorderly, all that stuff. When he was 39 years old in 1994, he got a job at Joe Stein's Pallet Factory, and the owners were like, hey, 
you need a place to live, you and your family. Why don't you do security at nighttime here? And there's a one bedroom trailer on the back that oh, you can nice. live in. Yeah. So they weren't homeless anymore. And the property had, think like pallets everywhere, eight foot yeah. uh, fence with barbed wire around the top. One day in July of 1994, Joe came home from work and all of his stuff and their son and Tina were just gone. Hmm. Like, just took everything. They sent him into a rage. And, of course, he went out and got fucked up on drugs and alcohol. And that, when he went to the bar where he always went to, that's where he met Kathy Magaziner. She was tall and thin. And he was like, hey, do you want to come back to my house? And she's like, yeah. Okay. Sure. So, wow. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is where we take a turn. Oh, this is where we take this, a turn. Yes. This, yes. <laughs> I'm pretty... Okay. Yes. I'm sure whenever he looks back at his life, he was like, and here is what. Yeah, right. Okay. So uh, Joe and Kathy started fucking around when they got back there. And about an hour in, his dominating urge kicked in. He grabbed her neck and began strangling her. Then he grabbed an extension cord to finish because he couldn't just do it with his bare hands. He claimed that after she passed, he cut some of her skin off and pieces of her body and put it in fucking Tupperware. He buried poor Kathy in a shallow grave about 40 feet from his trailer and then buried her clothes in her purse somewhere else. What the fuck? Yeah, he went from drunk and disorderly to this. For six months, he worked like normal, like nothing happened. And then one night, he went to dig Kathy back up. Six months later. She was decomposing. He got her skull out of the grave. (sighs) He attempted to have sex with it. I... I, (laughs) I don't. I don't have any words. I don't either. I don't, the look on your and face. I'm sorry for wanting to laugh. It's just like what? What the fuck? It's just so bizarre. Six months. I don't even think. Would you have been fully decomposed? I think he would have had to like push some of the. <sighs> anyway, that's why I read this and was like, oh, what? Because no. yeah. So his wife and his kid never came back. Like <laughs> she literally just left out of nowhere. Yeah. Yep. Golly willikers. Yeah. So he, I guess, disposed of the skull, but allegedly he ate the flesh. That was in the Tupperware? Mm-hmm. Yeah. For several months. Ah! And then laid low again. Joe got word that Tina had taken their son to live in Tent City with her boyfriend and pimp and had been busted for drugs, pro- prostitution, and child neglect. Okay. So this, you know, like, ugh. Okay. Their son was placed into the state's custody, which pissed him off because he allegedly was in foster care. I still don't believe it, but he just pissed him off. Right. Yeah. So his rap sheet was so long that he would never be awarded custody of their son because he had been in trouble so much. In July of 1995, he went on the hunt for Tina and her boyfriend in Tent City. He was like, fuck this. I'm going to find him. He knew where an axe was hidden there because he had lived there for so long. So he picked that up when he got there. So, like, the assumption is that this axe just never moved. Mm-hmm. I'm way. like, dude, it's Tent City. Yeah, it's literally, it was... like, the worst place in, yeah, like, hell on earth is yeah. every big city or small city's Tent City. Yeah, and he, he found it under a mattress. He knew where it was. That's where apparently it always was. And he mm, went and so grabbed it. bizarre. Now, I want to make sure that I say that the only true documented account of this was out of Joe's mouth. So many people debate how everything actually happened. He said that when he got there, he couldn't find them anywhere, like Tina or his son or her boyfriend. But he did find 33-year-old Randall Brewer and Randy Piker, and they were passed out on a mattress. He took out his rage on these poor guys, hit them both. Why? I'm getting so mad. He said that he 
allegedly that they knew her. So, so kill them because they, for they no were reason? like, we don't know where they're where she's at. And then he's like, well, yeah. So <clears throat> he hit them both repeatedly in their heads and it killed them instantly and just left them. He was still pissed, so he dropped the axe there and then went to continue looking. He lured two women into the shadows, got them high, started interrogating them about where Tina was, but they were like, we don't even know who the fuck that is. Yeah. And then he said he raped and murdered both of these women and then dumped them into the Patapsco River. Why do you got to rape him? What is going? Like is, is he on drugs right now or no? He's He probably is. I mean, he's a user, so I'm assuming okay. he is. Yeah. While dumping one of the women in the river, he looked up and saw a guy fishing that was staring at him. And he was just frozen, like, what are you... Oh, my God, what do you do? Could you imagine just no. sitting there trying to be like, oh, I'm going to get a carp. Is that a fish? Yeah. Yes, okay. but like, I'm just here relaxing. And then he's like, what, you're, that's a person. Yeah. So Joe grabbed the pipe and sprinted right at him and beat him to death. So that was his fifth person he killed in one night. Now, sadly, I couldn't find any of their names, so I'm not intentionally leaving that yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. He dropped the pipe and went home. In August, a month later, the cops found evidence linking him to Brewer and Piker and arrested him for that double homicide. He waited about a year for his trial and thought he would be convicted. However, stop. That was not the case. Apparently, after he killed the men and dropped that axe, a homeless man named Larry Amos found it and used it to kill another transient intent city named Everett Dowell. There was like a turf war going on there, they said. Intent City and the prosecutors thought charged him with the murders of the other two guys and thought it was part of that. Well, thank goodness the not okay. Well, for anyone that's yelling at me right now, I'm like, well, thank goodness the guy had killed someone too. <laughs> not like <laughs> it was just some dude that was like, well, then he used to chop up my apple, right? Yeah, I at least just it wanted was, to eat a nice apple. Yeah, <laughs> but they dropped all the charges against Joe Matheny, and he was released on November 11th, 1996. Joe was at a bar he went to a lot, and he met 23 year old Kimberly Lynn Spicer. Kimberly was Joe's friend, Connie's little sister, and Connie was the bartender, and Connie was like, oh, he's nice. So when Joe was like, hey, you want to come back to hang out with me, Connie didn't think twice about it because she's like, well, he's nice. I know him. Yeah. When they got to his trailer, he attempted to rape her, and she's like, fuck you. And when she tried to get away, he stabbed her repeatedly. Once she passed, he violated her with a beer bottle. I I fucking hate this guy. So I, too, I don't understand how he didn't think he'd get caught on this one, at least. No, like, he literally has been seen with the victim. Like, said, told his sister, hey, she's I'm, coming with she's me gonna come to, to my, my house. Home. Yeah. Like, that makes no sense. Yeah. He took her body to some nearby woods and put her in a shallow grave and then went home and got drunk and high like he normally did. After a few weeks, he was drunk and high on cocaine with his friend William Ashbrook Jr. Now, Joe's like, hey... I killed a woman who owed me money, and you need to help me move her body on my property. And William's like, shut the fuck up. No, you didn't. And he's like, no, come here, I'll show you. So this is weeks later, and the cops never came to him for the murder of the girl? Nope. A couple weeks later. And William's like, they get there, and he shows them. He's like, here here she is, because it was literally just under, like, sticks and leaves. Like he barely Oh, my gosh. Her. And William's like, yeah, I can't do this. And he rode off on his bicycle. And Joe's like, well, all right. So he grabs Kimberly's decomposing body and takes it back to his trailer and buries it right beside his door. Now He's really dumb, too. Yeah. The next day, William goes to Joe's boss, and he's like, that dude that lives on your property killed somebody, and I saw the body. And then they called the cops. The cops were like, hey, we need evidence, so we need you to wear this wire and go back to this William guy. Like, could you imagine? I would be like, no, I'm good. You get paid to do that. I want you to do it. 
I'll it would be him. one thing if him. it was yeah, yeah. I'd call, <laughs> like, but it would be gonna... one. It would be one thing too if it's like I don't have a real relationship with this guy. Yeah, we're just casual bar friends. Yeah, like he, if he's killing people, he will kill me. Yeah, I'm good. And now he knows I know he killed somebody. So why would it? No, 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 no. I'm good. You send an. I undercover. got lucky. I got to leave. His yeah. name's fucking Tiny, and bitch ain't Tiny. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. So, but when William he did it, and when he went back, uh, Joe was already suspicious of him. So he was like. Yeah, I'm not going to say anything to you. So he didn't talk about it ever again to him. So it was a fluke. On December 8th, Joe invited his friend, 37-year-old Rita Kemper, over to get high to his trailer. Joe demanded, like, we're going to fuck. It's not his property. Yeah. I, okay, here, sorry. That's okay. I was like, it's just, it's not his property. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it's owned by that other guy. And it's literally dirt outside on a business property. He doesn't, they don't need anything there. Yeah. That dude could just walk up there and dig up. Anything on his fucking property. Mm-hmm. Why the fuck are we dumb? I, I don't know. Everyone in here is fucking stupid, man. <laughs> I'm so fucking annoyed. Yeah. Fucking idiots. Yeah. So, Joe, when uh, when she got there, Joe was like, yeah, we're going to fuck. And she's like, yeah, no, we're not. And he got really mad. She tried to run away, and he tackled her outside and dragged her back into the trailer. Okay, one more thing. Ladies, you're doing the hard- harshest of drugs. Do you really think any guy is inviting you into their trailer to do harsh, harsh drugs and think that some foreplay ain't happening? Like these women, too, are also putting themselves in these situations like. Yeah, we're not victim blaming. Just be smart about at all. Just be. Don't do hard drugs. Step one. Don't Don't get into crack heroin. Yes. Or meth. Or I don't think crack heroin's a thing. Or crack crack, or heroin. Don't do crack heroin. (laughs) Don't do any. Don't don't do those things. Don't do those things because yeah. it puts you in bad situations. Especially with this huge ass guy. And yes. I'm going to show you a picture of him here in a second. Thing, it's like you don't know how people are going to act when they're on those severe Same. drugs. Same. Because yes. like a guy can already overpower you in, 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 in most cases unless you're like. Spelt like us. Yes. No, I'm kidding. Unless you <laughs> can bench press what I can bench. No, <laughs> but like, like I work out all the time. And Travis, who's not like, what is he like 5'11"? He can take me down and it's really fucking annoying and frustrating. But like you like, come on. If if a man is a weapon within himself. Yes. Now give him fucking crazy drugs and have his mind go. Give him uppers and let him see. So he he tackled her and dragged her back in. He beat the shit out of her and he was she was like begging, obviously, for her life. And he was laughing at her. He liked to like play with his prey. They said he was a cat fucking psycho. He's like, I dare you to leave. So he turned his back and she bolted out the door. Rita is like a badass. So, you know, how I told you the property is eight feet tall barbed wire fence. She climbed up a stack, one of the pallets, jumped the barbed wire fence. She didn't even feel it, obviously. And she got away. Like, cause she, he was like, you're not going to get out of here. And she's yeah. like, fuck you. Yes, I am. Look at her. Yeah. She got to a gas station and called the cops and was like, uh, I hope she got clean after that. Guess what happened, right? Get this. The fucking cops took a week to follow up on this. A fucking week. It pisses me off so bad. They already had someone else saying he has a dead body. They yep. already had that report. Now this bitch is like... He was the last person seen before somebody went missing. Yes. And now she's like, he tried to kill me. Yeah. It took him a... Like, I... This was 70s cops? This was 90s. 90s cops. Man. Yeah. They just started getting good in the early 2000s. Fucking... If you ask me. They're like, well, you're on drugs. You know, my thought, speculation, is that, well, they're like, well, you're a drug user. We don't care. Right. That's how I feel. I mean, you're not wrong. Same thing. She would have been an escort. Right? Yeah. 
So they finally searched the woods and found Kimberly's body on December 15th and arrested Joe. And as soon as they got him into interrogation, they're like, he's not going to say shit. Oh, no. He started bragging immediately to everything. He confessed mm. to murdering Kimberly, Kathy Magaziner, Randall Brewer, and, and Randy Piker. And then he said it bugged him that someone else got credit for his murders. Of the course. Guys. Yeah. He also was like, well, you don't even know everything that I've done. The, I've killed three other people that night. So you didn't even know that. And they dragged the river and never found those other people. So they're not sure if he's lying or not. But he said he killed 10 people total. Like he just told them that. One, hmm. they, one they did believe that he actually did was Tony Lynn Ingracia. Ingracia. She had been murdered and dumped on the side of a busy street, and it was a cold case. And Joe just could not shut his fucking mouth. He bragged that he tasted his victim's flesh and was like, oh, I didn't eat the meat all by myself. I had help. Get this shit. He said he mixed the people's human remains with pork and beef, opened a small barbecue stand outside of his trailer, and sold barbecue sandwiches to people. I'm going to leave right now. Yeah. Where the fuck did you find this story? Ed tripped and fell into it on black ice <laughs> in the parking lot. No, I just, I literally was scrolling through and was like, who's this fucking dude? And My now, gosh. real quick, uh, before I talk about the next part, I want to show you his prison. Okay, there's three photos. You guys Google Joseph Matheny. How do you spell Matheny? M E, it looks like Metheny. Of course it does. M E T H E N Y. Did I spell that right? I don't know. I asked you how to spell. <laughs> okay, this is this is him when he he got arrested. Yeah, I would have never gone anywhere. Hold on. And then I, once you do that, go to swipe. I would. Okay, hold up. Yeah, I'm showing her. If oh you guys my Google. gosh, I would have never gone anywhere with him. Firstly, yeah, no, you guys, this guy is a six trillion pounds. He looks like he smells like salami. He looks like his teeth smell like death. Yeah. Oh, he has halitosis. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. This guy. He's bald just, and big and he looks like he smells and like he just looks. tattoos, teeth that look like they're about to rot out of his mouth. Like. Yeah. He's the fucking worst. Uh, yeah. Like, he's, I don't know why you like. Even if worst. somebody told me he was a nice guy, I would not believe that he was a nice guy. He doesn't look nice at all. <clears throat> no. So when Joe got a lawyer, she, of course, started grasping for straws like they always do, saying, oh, poor Joe. He had a bad childhood. He was an orphan. He's a Vietnam veteran. All that shit. Yeah. In 1997, he went on trial for Rita Kemper's attack, and that's the girl that jumped the fence. But he was acquitted on attempted murder, which is fucking stupid, and found guilty of kidnapping and attempted rape and got 50 years, which fuck yes to the judge for yeah. doing 50 years for that. Because normally they're like, oh, here, go to probation. You can beat but, a woman within an inch of her life and rape her and sodomize her. And they'll be like, here's probation. Yeah, here, go to community service. I'm no. sure you won't do it again. So 50 years, good for them for once. In 1998, when Joe was 43, he was found guilty of Kathy Magaziner's death and got life in prison. Good. The same year, he was also found guilty of Kimberly Spicer's murder and was sentenced to death. Two years on death row, Joe became morbidly obese, like those pictures that yeah, you saw. Yeah, because he looked... He yeah, went from he 230 looked... to, like, 450. Yeah, like, yeah. that's in the pictures that come up mainly. I had to dig to find the one of him when he got arrested because he was, like, 230 he was so pounds. Much th- okay, I thought, he got, I thought he lost weight in jail. I was like, oh, oh no. somebody got buff. He got... Got it. Big. Bulky. Got it. He got pudgy. Okay, that's not pudgy, sister. That's it. <laughs> Doubling your body weight is not pudgy. That is eating too many fucking fudge rounds for the holidays. That's oh my God, I love a good little Debbie. But he's big Debra. Yeah. Like, <laughs> he's a little thick. 
But two years on death row, he got he was obese and he was bragging still about everything. Like he thought it was cool. Of course he would like, say that, wanted, especially in jail. Yeah. In two thousand, his sentence was overturned and he got a second life sentence instead. So he they oh, didn't okay. kill him. But on August fifth, twenty seventeen, he was found dead in his cell at sixty two. They they never released why, but I'm gonna guess his heart was filled with nacho cheese. <laughs> and good. What? Fuck that guy. No, that's that's probably why they were like, we'll take you off death row. You already put yourself on a different death row. Yeah, you're But fine. I'm pretty sure we're the ones fucking taxpayers paying his fucking heart meds. Yeah, well, we're not anymore because he died. No. So. Uh-huh. Fuck him. <laughs> I know. And that's the fucked up story that I've literally never heard of, of Joseph Roy Matheny, also known as the cannibal. The fatty patty. Fatty, fatty. Fuck that, fuck that dude. Okay, I'm gonna hop into mine just for time's sake. Okay, okay. mine's a little lengthy. Um, I found this on Wikipedia. Or originally, I got some information from Wikipedia. I really got this from that murder calendar thingy that I got you. Mm. Like and it has then, a different killer every day. Yeah, and so I found this murder. This not the la 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 la. I found this. I found this story okay. because it's not a murder. And then when I was looking through it, I never really get to do this, but as I was like diving into it, I came across Quora, I think I'm saying that right, Q U O R A. Okay. It's a website uh-huh. um in which Paul Martin Andrew wrote about his story, so everything is in his own words. Whose words? The victim. Oh. The whole thing is from the victim's words. Yay. So I'm going to end up reading word for word. So lived. I can't even believe, like... This is a survivor? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So feel free to talk and interrupt while I'm going through it, but oh, I, 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 how do you pass up him retelling the entire story? Oh, uh, you can't. Not at all. So I felt like I had to from the um, viewpoint of a 13-year-old boy <gasps> who was raped and held captive for oh, quite God. some time. I will say that, too. It, warning. I'm, like, there's Ugh. just trigger warnings on this. You guys have to make your own choices because he does talk about rape in here. And okay. so you just got to mentally prepare for Our that. Full podcast is a trigger warning. Right. Um, before I do, though, I did want to talk about Paul and who he became after his experience. So 30 years after his ordeal, he went public with this story and became an activist for bolstering Virginia law. Also, additional funding for continued civil rights commit or civil commitments for sex offenders after their criminal sentences end. Oh. So if you get out of jail for rape being mm-hmm. someone that you're now being followed up with in a, in a more severe way good in this case virginia did not get a chance to test its new civil commitment for sexually violent predators act so essentially they just extended the guy who did this five extra years when another victim came came forward after he came out later on but whatever because i'll tell you more about that later so this is a story in his own words okay i'll try to let you know whenever i'm just talking myself Okay. I'm sure you're going to figure it out. But anyway, I was born in 1959, the first of three children. With both parents working, we were latchkey kids who pretty much took care of ourselves in the morning and after school. I was 11 when my parents separated and they divorced when I was 12. The divorce was pretty hard on us all with bad feelings on both sides, but we got through it. When I was 13, my mother remarried. My stepfather was a widower with three children, and we moved from our rural Isle of White County into his home in Portsmouth. In the city, with movies, arcades, convenience stores, as well as a newly acquired smoking habit, I needed money. He's 13, and he's a smoker. He's like, He's a committed smoker. He was born in 59, so it's in the 60s. So that's pretty... That's on brand, right? It'd be different now. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, no, so early 70s. But But I'm like... I can't believe at 13 he he admits to having just a true smoking habit. He's a smoker. 
Um, to earn more, I took a paper route, which I enjoyed because it gave me a sense of responsibility and accomplishment. I could ride around and smoke a six. <laughs> I love this story. Like, I love him telling you stuff, too, because it's really interesting the way just how life was in the early 70s. Yeah. One day in January, about six months after our move to Portsmouth, it turned really cold and snowed. The streets were frozen the next morning, a Thursday, and I had to deliver my papers wearing ice skates and pulling a sled. What? With school closed that day, I stayed at home with the younger children. Because we were out of milk, I started off to walk the four blocks up the street to a convenience store. So oh. a 13-year-old automatically is going to get milk for his This is not going to end well. It does. I mean, at the I end mean, of the like day. I mean, like right now. Right. Yeah. I was about three blocks from home when a blue van pulled up beside me. The driver said he needed help moving some furniture and asked if I wanted to make some money. I was a precocious verbal child, and my parents didn't raise me to be seen and not heard. I was very at home around adults. He seemed honest enough, so I got in. Ugh. He introduced himself as Pee Wee. In a recent interview with a Richmond newspaper, Richard Alvin Osley introduced himself using the exact words he said to me that day. Everybody calls me Pee Wee. Who's everybody? That was just his name. Fucking To everyone else. I'm but that's the, the person we hate is Richard Alvin Osley. I assumed who we hated was Pee Wee. Yes. In retrospect, I believe Pee Wee is a mechanism he uses to make himself appear weak or harmless. As we headed for the interstate, I became a bit concerned. At some point, I noticed a long wooded handle or wooden handle knife in the molded pocket in the back of the engine compartment cover. Inside the van, I lit a cigarette, and Osley said he smoked the same brand. Then he stopped at his store to get a few things for his brother. It was his brother's house that we were supposedly headed. He left me alone in the van, and as I sat there, I suddenly had a strong desire to get out and run. Oh, no. But there were a number of reasons why I didn't. Firstly, I had no real idea where we were except that we were somewhere near or around Suffolk. I was afraid of the trouble I would get in if my parents found out what I had done. And on some level, I was afraid he would think badly of me if I took off when he needed my help. He came back a few minutes later with several bags of groceries and a carton of Marlboro's, my brand. As As he drove, he constantly engaged me in conversation, encouraging me to talk about myself and assuring me we didn't have much farther to go. When we finally got to our destination, he became upset to find a chain across the dirt road he said led to his brother's house. We were going to have to walk to the house and get the key to the lock on the chain. He asked me to come with him and help carry the supplies he brought to stock his brother's deer box, which was on the way to the house. Uh, This is me talking, but the story was really, to me, well planned. You know, I mean, it, it seems plausible. It seems super plausible, especially to a thirteen-year-old. I'm, I yeah. don't like that. I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. We'd gone <laughs> only about ten or twenty yards down the dirt road when he had, when he said he'd forgotten something and told me to wait while he went back to the van. Oh, the van was still clearly in view, and I was able to see him put something down the front of his pants. I was pretty sure it was the knife. I was getting really nervous, but I was unsure of what to do, and I still had a sense I was just overreacting. You're never overreacting. Nobody really expects the worst. We had walked about a quarter of a mile when he stopped and pointed to a raised area about 30 yards from the road. He He said this was his brother's deer box. All that could be seen from the surface was a small piece of tin shaped like a pan that looked like it had been there for a long time. He lifted the front edge to reveal a structure built into the ground. Osley said this was where his brother hid while he was hunting. I was relieved that some of what he had told me seemed to be true, and I thought that soon we'd be on our way back to Portsmouth with the load of furniture. So all the way through, he still believed that this was going to happen. He went down into the box and had me hand him the supplies. Then he asked me to come down into the box to help him straighten it up. 
That seemed harmless enough, so I lowered myself into the box. The box was made out of plywood and two-by-fours, about four feet high by four feet wide and eight feet long, with a large shelf at the back with foodstuffs and supplies and sleeping bags on the floor. When I lowered myself in, I saw the knife that I had previously seen in the truck stuck into the end of the support that held up the shelf. He told me to move to the back of the box so I could help him shake out a blue piece of plastic covering the floor. As we were struggling with this sheet in the tight quarters, he said, hold it. This isn't working. Then he said, I've got bad news for you. You've just been kidnapped. My blood ran cold and I got that scared feeling you get when you've just been caught in a lie. Then he laughed and said, can't you take a joke? I'm just kidding. But you'll have to stay here until this afternoon. I immediately struck a defensive posture, telling him I knew self-defense and I would hurt him if he came near me. He said I was scaring him and that made me drop my guard. All at once, he grabbed me and pulled me to him. As I was fighting to get free, I reached for the knife, but he had me pretty well restrained. Then he hit me, and I stopped struggling. Osley warned me that if I ever tried to touch the knife again, he would kill me. That knife has always haunted me over the years. It was a good-sized knife, about 12 inches long, with the brand Old Hickory burned into the wooden handle. When I saw a set of knives made by the same company in the grocery store about five years later, I was instantly filled with fear and wanted to run out of the store. I avoided that aisle for a long time after that. To this day, I'm instantly reminded of the incident and the fear whenever I see one of those knives. And thinking back on that week, I always thought I remembered all the sexual abuse. But I now realize I remember only five incidents, even though Owsley abused me as many as three times a day. The first happened almost immediately. This is when I'm going to tell you to turn it off or whatever if you're around your kids. God. And then also, you're wild for listening to this with your kids. Yeah. And they, but I think the saddest thing was the knife. Like when he told, when he mentions that, I don't know, that's just so sad. The whole thing is sad. The whole thing is sad, but like that now he has a trigger. Yeah. That's what I think makes me sad is that mm-hmm. there's something in his life forever and always that will trigger him. Yeah. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to leave. Well, I'm gonna, do, can you just tell the story to everyone else and I leave? No. Okay. He began by telling me, okay, here we go. Sorry. The first happened almost immediately. He began by telling me to remove all of my clothes, and then he did the same. He told me to turn over onto my stomach, and I felt him grease my rectum with Vaseline. He told me what was going to happen next might be uncomfortable, but it was something he had to do, and I should be quiet. He was not gentle as he lay on top of me, raping me. I don't remember him saying anything. I knew what he was doing, but I had no idea what for. I saw a Nick Nolte movie, The Prince of Tides, a few years ago. He described the time when three escaped convicts broke into his home when he was a boy. One raped his mother, another raped his sister, and the third bent him over a table, pulled down his pants, and raped him. What the f- He said he had no idea one man could even do that to another. I thought the same thing while Osley was sodomizing me. It seemed to last forever, but it was probably only 10 minutes or so. Mm. Isn't that so sad? He he had to like reference a movie because he didn't even understand what was happening because he didn't know boys could do that to boys. Oh, God. I know that he ejaculated because the semen had acted like an enema. And the next morning I saw that I had soiled my underwear. Oh, God. When it was over, he rolled off me and told me to get dressed. He gave me all new clothes, including thermal underwear. I didn't know why he gave me different clothes until the day he left and made me change back into my original clothes. Then I realized he hadn't wanted anyone to recognize me by my clothes if they happened to see us outside of the box. The next incident I remember happened that night as we lay in our sleeping bags. He reached over, undid my pants, pants, and masturbated me. Again, I had no idea what was happening, but after it was over, I figured it out pretty quick. He asked me if that was my first time, and because I didn't want him to think I was some rube, I told him that it wasn't and that my girlfriend had done that to me before. 
That was a lie, but it was also the last time he did that. He was withdrawn and very quiet. What I said had probably upset him, or I'm sorry, what I said had obviously upset him. I recognized early that if I could keep him talking, I could put off his attacks, and I tried to continually engage him in conversation and otherwise keep him occupied. At his trial, he remarked that I talked all the time, that he couldn't shut me up. I really don't remember any specific conversations, but I remember that we talked a good bit about my life and my family life. He was good at conversation, or at least at getting young boys to open up to him. He spoke often of two brothers and showed me pictures and showed me their pictures and told me their names. Fuck this guy. Much later, I learned that they had been previous victims. Oh, At no. no time did he ever show any affection for me, nor did he ever ask me to show any towards him. He never kissed me. He never expressed any regret for anything he did to me. So he literally showed him old victims. Yeah. Because, of course, I'm... I'm sure he was out on parole or something like that. uh... Once he asked me what I thought about him and his sexual assaults, and I told him I thought he was sick and needed help. While he didn't react overtly to this, he didn't seem to appreciate it. Osley had planned all this very well. He had gone to a great deal of trouble to build that box. He had put a lot of thought into his capture story. The details, like stopping to buy my cigarettes, told me that he had planned uh, planned for this to last a while. I believe he'd spent a lot of time thinking up the abduction and the box, but he had not spent a lot of time thinking about what would happen once all the pieces were in place. Did he think he, we could hide out there forever? Did he think that I'd continue to provide him with an ever-diversified supply of sex? Did he think I'd come to enjoy it? His initial thrill seemed to wear off as the week progressed. He also seemed not to have planned an exit strategy. In some ways, I'm glad about that. If he had, he probably would have killed me. Once I tried to make a deal with him about the sexual abuse, and he made it clear that he was in control and would do as he pleased. Another time, for no reason than to terrorize me, he threatened to to strip me naked and chain me to a tree where he would whip me until I bled, allowing the cold to freeze my wounds, and then he would return to do it again. What? Uh, Because all this is in January. What state? What part of the... I think it's like South Carolina. I need to... Portsmouth? Yeah. They don't say the state. Is that Virginia? Um, I think so. I just made that up. I'll look. You keep Thank going. you. With this terrible fucking story. Right. When I pleaded with him not to do that, he laughed and said, can't you take a joke? I often pretended to be asleep when we were in the box so he could leave me alone. So he would leave me alone. But one time he woke me up and told me to move to the back of the box. He got on his knees, opened his pants and pulled out his penis. He told me to put it. In my, he told me to put my mouth on it. When I hesitated, he assured me it was clean. I remember thinking that whether it was clean or not was not on my mind. He picked up the knife and holding it to my throat, told me he would kill me if he felt my teeth. I didn't know why he said that. Oh, my God. How sad is this? I hate that. The thought of biting had never occurred to me. He tried to finish, but I was gagging and throwing up, and he couldn't. In fact, he never finished a single act of oral sex, which seemed to depress him, and his frustration seemed to grow with each incident. Outside, we cooked by campfire and explored the woods. Just... What? I remember remarking that outside of the box, it was very much like a regular camping trip. There was only one incident of sexual abuse I can remember occurring outside of the box, and it happened only after I had commented about all of the sex occurring inside the box. Osley did not like to be analyzed. If I made any observations about his behavior, he got upset and would change, as if to prove me wrong. He refused to introduce any psychological evidence at his trial. He always seemed to be thinking and brooding. Ugh. 
Also, he he was very strong. On Sunday, three days into the, into the kidnapping, he began to talk about getting me home. He gave me two choices. The first was he would take me back, and I would tell my parents I had run away. If I agreed to do that and went through with it, he would send me a money order for $50. What the fuck? He also said someone would be watching me if I called the police, and I would need a bodyguard if I took his money and went back on my word. My second choice was for him to leave me in the box and contact my mother to let her know I was where I was so she could come and pick me up. He told me not to expect her until the next day, so he'd have time to get away. He gave me four hours to decide. I chose the second option. He bound my hands and feet with wire. I remember thinking it was the same kind of wire they used to bind my newspaper into bundles. Oh. He moved me to the center of the box, and then he straddled me. Without warning, he began to beat me in the face. He was very upset that I had not taken the first option. Oh, God. I chose the second option, partially because I didn't want the cloud of someone watching my every move when I was back home, but mostly I didn't want to have to explain to my parents how or why I had run away. I know it's not real common these days for kids to be concerned about what people think of them and to want not and to want not to disappoint their parents, but it was very common in my day, and it certainly was in my case. As he beat me, he kept asking why I hadn't chosen the first option. He accused me of being a goody-goody. All I can remember saying was I was sorry. I testified at the trial that he began crying so hard that he had trouble untying my hands. I tried to convince him I was willing to go through with his first option, but he didn't believe me. Finally, on Thursday, one week after my ordeal began, he announced he was leaving. He told me that if he stayed with me any longer, he would kill me. When night fell, he began to get his things together and had me change back into my original clothes. He wrapped the chain around my ankle and secured it to the lock. This time, he left my hands untied. He asked for my mother's phone number so he could call her, and he said he'd tell her to bring a pair of bolt cutters when she came to get me. <sighs> this is him in the box. Oh, my God. It's so small. It's so small. Just as he was getting ready to leave, he turned to me and said, I've got to have that one more time. No. And he raped me again. Fucker. The next morning, I awoke early in anticipation of my mother's arrival. I tried to pull the chain from the wall, but it was fastened securely. Then I found a pair of fingernail clippers he'd left, and I started trying to cut through the chain. It was slow work, but I was making some progress. It was these marks on the chain that I used to identify it at the trial. Oh. I never really thought about the possibility of dying in the box. A 13, it's so 13, 13 back in the seventies. Like now, if a 13 year old was in this situation, they'd be like, I'm dead. Mm-hmm. Like there'd be no concept that they weren't going to end up dying. Yeah. I, I think because now we know the horrors of the fucking world now and they how know crazy people stranger are. danger, et cetera. Yeah. Then um, a 13 like- year old wasn't going to the, isn't going to the store to get milk. Yeah, or cigarettes. And watch all their... (laughs) Or cigarettes. Hopefully. (laughs) In my mind, I was on the way to freeing myself. So this this kid, this guy is just unbelievable. Yeah, he's so... But he also was just, I'm capable. Like, at the end of the day, this kid who was 13 was going on 35. He was like, I'm capable. I'm in control now. I'm going to get out. I mean, good. Yeah. Fuck this story. All right, keep going. Also, for some reason, I never imagined the possibility of him outright killing me. He never thought he was going to kill him. Pretty soon, I heard the sound of a vehicle coming. I was certain it was my mother because I could hear the shifting of gears, and my mother owned a Plymouth, a Plymouth Duster with a three-speed manual transmission. But he had never called her. 
When I saw it wasn't my mother, but some sort of a truck, I began to yell and scream, mostly profanities. I'm always reminded of this when I watch The Silence of the Lambs and the girl in the pit screams profanities at Jodie Foster as she's being rescued. One of the passengers pointed a rifle at me and ordered me to come up out of the box. I told him I couldn't, that I had been kidnapped and was chained. I was very afraid he was going to shoot me. Eventually, the four rabbit hunters got out of their truck and sent someone to get the police. I wanted to continue to cut through the chain to free myself, but they told me I should wait until the police came so they could see me as I'd been left. When the police came, they took pictures, cut the chain, and put me in a police car and took me to the hospital. But it was not the hospital where my mother worked, and I insisted they take me to that one. My first memory of being at the hospital was sitting in a large examination room. I heard footsteps coming quickly down the hall and my mother's voice saying, where is he? Where is he? I have the clearest memory of my mother running up to the police officer standing outside the door. Her knees were bent as she ran up to him, and I believe she was about to collapse. Yeah. I jumped off the exam at the exam table and ran to her, and she hugged me very hard. Oh. I'll also say, too, like, he does, like, the fact that he was found the next day, those hunters weren't there all those other days. Yeah. They happened to drive by that day yeah. at that time. Mm-hmm. If they never had, he would have died. Yeah. He would have starved to death, mm-hmm. chained to a fight, or he would have gotten out because he's like, I was making slow. Yeah. He obviously in his mind was like, I was going to get out either way, but he was left for dead. Oh, God. Which is way worse than just being killed. Yeah. Well, not in this case, because he actually was able to be freed. But yeah. Later, some police detectives brought a photo album and I identified a picture of Richard Alvin Osley. At the time, I was still calling him Pee Wee. The detective called my mom, or excuse me, the detective told my mom they already knew who they were after. They just wanted me to confirm it. Something that later bothered me about that statement was if they knew who they were looking for, why had they so adamantly told my parents and family that I had run away? Oh, God. He was a repeat offender living in my neighborhood, missing on the very day he was supposed to go back to court for abusing a child. Are you fucking kidding me? Another child comes up missing from the same area that very day and nobody put it together. If they did, they did not tell my parents. Afterwards, a doctor came in and examined my rectum. They took an x-ray of my nose, which showed a hairline fracture. Yeah. Are you serious? God damn it. Isn't that fucking unbelievable? Yes. Obviously. Obviously it was him. Even people that aren't even into true crime would put that together. Yes. That's so fucked up. That's, uh, of course, every, every kid runs away. Every kid runs away. Even, oh, no, yeah. There's a child, Chester the Molester lives down the street, and he went missing the same day. But no, it's not. It has nothing to do. They're not connected. Your kid just ran, ran away, away to the Marlboro Ranch. After he like, told you that he was going to get milk for the kids. Fucker. Yeah. Ugh. Okay. I fucking hate that. I hate all of this. I, didn't, I know. It all fucking sucks. Yeah. My eyes were black and one of my teeth was cracked, but otherwise I was in good condition. We made one stop on the way home at the grocery store and my stepfather went in to get me whatever I wanted. It was mostly junk food, chips, and candy. Yeah. Then I went right upstairs to take a sh- or to shower. I remember looking down at the water at my feet and seeing it was black. Ugh. I was really dirty. That shower felt especially good. I felt as if I were washing off the entire week. Later that night, the police came to my house. They asked very explicit questions about the sexual abuse and wanted to recount each incident. Oh, no. It was then I discovered I had lost a day. I'd been trying to keep track of the days in my mind over the course of the week, but somehow I had lost one. I have no real recollection of my reunion with my siblings. 
I believe now that's because my parents kept them from making too big a deal of it, probably to try and make my homecoming less traumatic. I do remember my my stepsister, who was about six, telling me she knew I was coming home that day. On her way to school, she had seen a rainbow, and she knew it was a sign from God that this would be the day. On Sunday, we went to church, and I remember it being a very joyous day. People came up afterwards to tell me about the service they'd had on the Sunday I was gone. It revolved a lot about me being missing. The youth choir had sung the Sunday after I was taken, and several members cried when they sang their song. Until recently, I had never really talked about what happened to me during that week. Very close friends have been surprised to find out something so extraordinary has never been brought up or shared or even hinted at. My partner of 22 years had only a vague understanding of what I had endured. Now, I'm going to say here, of 22 years, so it took 30 years for him to ever talk about it. I, yeah. Besides what he had done, and then this apparently, and then he became an activist. Now, what I don't know is if his spouse, and this is irrelevant, but if his spouse was a male or a female. I read something else that he was married to a man. Mm-hmm. And I was like, cool, you be you. Mm-hmm. And then I read that he was married to a woman and had two kids. Huh. So it's very weird because he is out there in the, I Googled and I looked at like six What's different articles. Again? Paul Martin Andrews. Okay. You keep. But I, I just wanted to say, because I just don't, I just don't know. It's Andrew, not Andrew. Sorry. Paul Martin Andrew. One person, however, a fireman and a member of my church, Troy Trippin, I love his name, told yeah. me he had spent the week riding in a helicopter searching for me. He is the only person who has, over the years, occasionally brought up that week, and I've always appreciated it. Most people have acted like the incident never happened. My parents felt I was broken and they needed to fix me. Unfortunately for me, that was also the prevailing opinion of the police and members of the medical com- community. I had done nothing to precipitate their opinion, but the police convinced my parents I might become a threat to other children and act on them sexually. Everyone recommended that they at least put me in psychotherapy, and many recommended that I be placed in an institution. What? Because he was raped. What? They're saying he would rape kids. That is so... He, he says, what had I done? Why was I being punished? Yeah. I was sent to a locked psychiatric ward with drug addicts, runaways, and suicidals. What? Over the next few days, I went with the other kids to group therapy and occupational therapy where I learned to make a belt. Okay. So I get the therapy part because, yes, not psychotherapy. That. Not psychotherapy. Not that. That's that therapy where they like, like shock you. Yeah. No. Like. Yeah. No, not nurse ratchet. Hatchet. Yeah. What is it? I don't remember. Ratchet. Yeah. I went for one test where the tester showed me a series of pictures, and I was to make up a story about what I thought was happening in them. The test bothered me a lot because all the pictures seemed to have some bearing on my ordeal. The tester assured me they were random pictures, and even though I believe that now, I had a hard time believing it then. When I was with Osley, he told me if if it hadn't been me, it would have been someone else. I said then, as I say today, I thank God I was the one this happened to. It upset my parents to hear me say that, and people today don't often understand it. I say it mostly because it was my experience I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy, but also because I knew inside I was strong enough to get through it, and a lot of kids wouldn't have been. I still believe that today, but I've expanded on my reasons a bit. 
Today, I'm so grateful to have seen the hand of God at work in my life. Whenever I've had a crisis of faith, I've always been able to look back on that week and know with certainty there is a God, that God answers prayers, and that there are such things as miracles. The entire time I was with Osley, I prayed for deliverance and protection. I cross myself after my prayers, as Catholics do, even though I'm not Catholic. Today, when I hear or read the words of the Apostle Paul, pray without ceasing, I am reminded of my prayers in the box. As you can imagine, I'm grateful God answered those prayers and the prayers of so many others. The circumstances of my survival and rescue are proof enough to me of his existence and love for me. Over the years, I have tried to make sense of that week. I've often questioned why God would have reached out his hands to save me, and I've come to believe God saved me because he had a purpose for my life that did not include dying in that box or at the hand of Richard Osley. And that was his statement. Now, in January 2002, Osley was murdered in his prison cell by a cellmate, Dewey Keith Venable. Good job, Um, Dewey. Yeah, good way to go, Dewey. And Andrews later said that he did not hate Osley or did not wish death on him. He sounds like a really good human. Well, let me confirm that for you. Okay. He is the founder and president of the Paul Martin Andrews Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping those in need. He's also the founder of the Paul Martin Andrews Institute, a think tank focused on social justice and economic development. Andrews was born in 1959 in Virginia, United States. He attended the University of Virginia, where he earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in political science. After college, he worked in the public sector for several years before founding the Paul Martin Andrews Foundation in 2002. He's a passionate advocate for social justice and economic development. He's worked with numerous organizations to promote economic development and social justice, including the United Nations, the World Bank, and the International Monetary Fund. He has also served on the boards of several nonprofit organizations, including the International Rescue Committee Committee, and the Global Fund for Children. He's married and has two children, and he currently resides in Washington, D.C. Whoa. Mm-hmm. I, was, I didn't see any of what you just said coming. Me either. None. I've never even heard of that. I guess I didn't read that. The <laughs> cat, you just looked at me like, I, uh, like uh, a bitch. I got it from your desk. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, did, I must have skipped that day. So I went to, um, over the holidays, I cleaned out my desk and I had saved this story. And yeah. I tucked it somewhere and then just randomly found it. And I was Damn. like, I can't believe a kid lasted eight days in a hunting box Yeah. Um, in the woods. And then to dig into it further, I knew that he, I knew it was a, a child rapist who had taken him. God, yeah. And I knew he was 13. I knew that it was over the course of like eight days and that he was left for dead, that he was chained and left for dead. Fuck that guy. I'm glad that guy's dead. And I'm glad that the victim is so, such a good member of society. I think it's like. Could have gone another way. It could have. Maybe it was a psycho thing. Like, that's the other thing is like every victim back then was treated then as a perp. Well, that and, and the time frame. Yep. When it was. And it was a, a man for a man, too. Yep. Which is less common and definitely not talked about back then. Yeah. Obviously, because they thought he was going to be a fucking rape. Anyway, that. I'm glad that right it went the way it did and it could have been way worse. I think it's wild to think about his mentality as being a child and not understanding. Like hearing it from his, like yeah. he didn't even understand yeah. that that was a thing and yeah. that you could do that. Um, he doesn't talk about the pain of it. He said he doesn't remember, but five instances and it happened three times he, eight. I'm glad he doesn't remember. Me too. It's such a shocking and, and sad experience. I think also too, just the fact that it took 30 years for him to talk about it. So he has a spouse of 22 years and never talked about it. Ugh. Could you imagine, like, hearing that later? 
you're like, okay, I'm going to talk to you about this. And 22 like, years in. What? And yeah. you're like, that's what you went through? And you're just yeah over here using a knife every day to chop up vegetables mm-hmm. and nope. just the whole you, not feeling weird about belts because you learned how to make a belt. And that's what he took away from it as a grown adult. Yeah. You know, this is him writing it as a grown adult and still like, yeah, I learned how to make a belt. Oof. It's just, it's an unbelievable, it, it, it's just, it's really unbelievable. Yeah. We definitely went two different directions today, mm-hmm. which we always do. I was happy to tell his story. Yeah. It's sad. I'm happy that he felt free to tell it. Yeah. I'm sad it took 30 years, but maybe that was his own personal journey that he needed to take. Yeah. For him to feel like he could talk about it because it, it is male on male is a whole different scenario. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe other people will hear it. And All is traumatic. Like they can tell their stories too. Yeah. Well, that was 20, about 21 years ago that he, he is now like 64. Yeah. I Googled him. Yeah. Isn't he good looking? He's very handsome. Yeah. He's a very handsome man. Mm -hmm. He looks like a politician. He, yes. He so does. A hundred percent. If he had a book, I'd read it. He might have one, but I don't know. I mean, that was a good story. Yeah. He's awesome. Not a good one, but it was well told. It's by him. Mm -hmm. Well told by him. Way to go, guy. Way to go, Paul. Way to go, Becky. Oh. Thank you for me finding it. Yeah. <laughs> On my desk, apparently. <laughs> As you trip and fell into your fucking crazy shit. Oh, yeah. Um, well. Yeah. I felt like that was a good episode. Thanks, everyone. We hope you think so, too. Yes. Rate, subscribe. Review. And give us a review. Yeah. That would be nice, too. Tell everybody all yes. this stuff. <laughs> Please. Okay. Love you. Bye. We love you. Bye. Theodore, can I put that down?